The movie Shadowlands recounts some of the difficulties C.S. Lewis experienced as his wife was dying. As he leaves the hospital, someone asks him what he's going to do in light of the situation that he's facing. She's on her deathbed. Pray, he says. I'm going to pray. Do you think it will change God's mind if you do? The friend asks. Now, C.S. Lewis had been an atheist himself, someone who didn't believe in God's existence. Furthermore, he'd been sure that if God did exist, he certainly wouldn't change his mind just because people prayed. I know, that idea sounds ludicrous to you and me, doesn't it? But remember, this is just where he was on his faith journey. No, Lewis replied, the primary outcome of prayer is that it changes me. Do you even feel like praying now, the friend asked? No, I don't. But sometimes when I put myself into the posture, something supernatural happens. Now I love how Lewis says that. Sometimes actually doing the thing we've been commanded to do, it makes something happen. Do you see that? When I put myself into the posture, something supernatural occurs. Now throughout the scripture, we see this dynamic over and over. When God reveals something to us, it's his invitation to us to experience more of him. And when he commands us to do something, he empowers the outcome. And that's the result. He empowers it to actually occur. Now, even if your faith quotient is low, as Lewis's was while his wife lay sick, the action sometimes creates sacred space where something supernatural occurs. That, that is, the miracles kick in. The, the prayer works. Now, here's, here's why. Jesus doesn't reveal himself just to impart information or to incite study. Rather, he invites us to a better way of life. He invites us to encounter him and to experience the blessings of his kingdom. Now, if you look through the New Testament, you'll see that same pattern over and over. When Jesus gives a direction, that, that is a revelation of what to do next, the people who take action actually experience a miracle even when the odds are stacked against them. That, that is when they put themselves in that posture, something just breaks open, something just works. Like for instance, here are a couple of examples. The servants at the wedding of Cana of Galilee, Jesus instructed them to fill the water pots with water in John chapter two. And despite the odds, they heard his direction, they took action, they experienced a miracle. Water was transformed into wine. Uh, there was a blind man whom Jesus told to remove the mud from his eyes. Uh, Jesus, remember, spit in the dirt and then he covered the man's face with the mud in John 9, 1 through 12. Despite those odds, the man heard Jesus' direction, he took immediate action, and he experienced a miracle. He was able to see. Or, th or think about, final example, the paralytic who was lowered through the roof while Jesus taught in Mark chapter 2, where the crowds were so big that the friends couldn't get to Jesus, so they went on the roof and then came down through the ceiling. Jesus told the man, he said, take up your mat, rise and walk. Again, we see the same pattern, direction, action, miracle. Jesus' direction was always an invitation to take immediate action and experience a miracle. You can look through the entire Bible. You'll see the same pattern at work. In fact, once you see it, you won't be able to unsee it. Now, as I reflected on this one day, I thought about it like this. God's commandments to do something are actually his enablements to do it. Or to say it like this, commandment equals enablement. I pondered that for a bit. I figured if it was true one way, it's true the other way. In, in mathematics, which I, I know the Holy Spirit and the spiritual thing isn't math, right? But in mathematics, an equals sign, it's good both ways. 
So if a commandment equals an enablement, then an enablement equals a commandment. That, that is, if God empowers us to do something, he graciously authorizes and, and tenderly commands, encourages us to take the leap of faith and do it. Furthermore, even if we don't feel like it, like C.S. Lewis didn't feel like praying, even if we don't feel like it, many times the miracle will, will come as we step forward and take that action. So if the Spirit has gifted you to write, then write. If the Spirit has gifted you to serve, then serve. If the Spirit has gifted you to teach or prophesy or build or plant or dance or sing or to do any other thing, then that is your commandment, your permission, your encouragement to do that thing. Furthermore, it is your promise that supernatural results will follow. You see, the spiritual gifts empower believers like us, me and you, to live beyond our normal capacity to do the impossible. And empowering believers is the first of six purposes in this talk that I want to cover about the reasons we have these gifts. Well, the second one is this, it's to edify the body. So empower believers. Number two, edify the body. Ephesians 4, it tells us that Jesus gave the fivefold ministry leaders to his church in order to equip them for the work of ministry. And then here's the quotation from Ephesians 4.12, for building up the body of Christ. Some translations say this, for the edification of the body. The word edify, it means to build. That is, something is being constructed that exceeds the capacity of all of the individual parts. Now notice that the first gift and the first use of the gifts, it isn't evangelism. It's edification. That, that is, ministry begins in-house. Before my final year of seminary, I spent the summer traveling across the state of Alabama and teaching the material that I've been talking to you about from LifeLift. I've been teaching it. I, in fact, I discussed it in one of the episodes here, The Backstory. Um, I taught this with my dad across the state. Remember, he wrote the first draft of what was the beginning seeds of this current book that I'm teaching you from. We visited every conceivable version of church you could possibly imagine. I saw rural churches that had more attenders on Sunday than the entire population of the city in which they were located. I saw churches located in busy intersections, which hardly anyone noticed. I saw traditional churches that were thriving. I saw contemporary churches that weren't. I saw tiny churches doing 10 times the amount of mission work that you would dream possible. I saw stalled out churches that seemed to have every single resource at their disposal but weren't doing anything with it. And, and I saw blossoming churches that seemed to grow with virtually no resources at all. It, it was crazy. I saw every possible mix. Every church was different. Here's one thing the thriving ones of all stripes, shapes, sizes, locations had in common though. In, in fact, some of the non-thriving ones actually had this in common too. They all wanted to grow. In, in fact, in some of the churches, the pastors were obsessed with growth. One day, Dad told a group of deacons in one of the healthy churches something enlightening about this entire church growth thing. He just kind of will tell you kind of how the conversation went. There are four types of growth, he said. There are actually at least four. He continued, the first kind of growth is spiritual growth. People in the church connect with their Heavenly Father and they gain an acute awareness of His love. They grow in the grace and the knowledge and love of Jesus. They experience the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. They spiritually awaken. 
Now, two things struck me about this. The first was that church growth is, first of all, personal growth. Churches aren't mere institutions. They're supernatural compositions of people. So for a church to grow, the people that are in that church must first grow. The second is this. Spiritual growth is largely an inside job. It's not an action. It's an awakening. It grows when we see who we really are, when the veil is removed, and when we connect with God, who He truly is, and who He says we are. In other words, it happens when we're pulled into a living reality of the truths that we discuss really in the first five to seven talks of this series about identity and about walking in the identity of a Heavenly Father who loves us, who adores us, and living from that identity. Well, back in the conversation, my dad continued. He said, the second kind of growth is, is ministry growth. Now, explain the difference between ministry and mission. Um, just like I, I talked about a few discussions ago, a few episodes ago. The lines sometimes blur. I remember my dad saying, but when I use the word ministry, I'm referring to serving people inside the church. And when I use the word mission, I'm talking about reaching to people outside the church. Now, I talked about that, I think, in talk number 15, uh, when I discussed this graphic that I'm going to put down in the show notes for you, where you can look and you can see just really how the gifts are used for both ministry internally and mission externally. Both of those are important, and due to our creative design and our unique bent, you probably, and I I think rightfully, have people in every church who have a tendency to lean towards one or the other. The place to begin, though, is ministry, not mission. Internal, not external. Now, Now, I know what you might be thinking. Church leaders notoriously go straight to the passage at the end of Matthew's gospel known as the Great Commission when they're asked what the church should be doing. And there they tell us that Jesus tells us, Matthew 28, 19 through 20, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I get it. I mean, Jesus couldn't be any more clear, could he? Well, he's actually crystal clear. He expects that his church will move throughout the world, taking his message with them wherever they go. So again, ministry mission, it isn't an either-or decision. We do both, but the second only works after the first is in place. So my dad continued. He said, a church of healthy ministry, it creates a home base from which people who are sent into the world can thrive. They can continue serving from an overflow of what they're constantly receiving. That's why mission growth is the third type of growth, not the second. Now, the deacons that were in that meeting, they asked a few great questions. It was obvious they were trying to understand the different types of growth and just mentally kind of filed them. Now, I've mentioned them as separate areas, my dad said, but but they're really connected. They flow together when things are healthy. And that's really what I want you to see as you're listening to me recount his conversation here. Uh, he explained that people who are spiritually healthy begin serving one another. That, that is, ministry happens as an automatic expression of encountering the Father's heart and our identity in Christ in a fresh way. And people who experience a kingdom atmosphere of the family of God naturally reach out and invite others into it. That That is, mission occurs as an overflow too. We continue. When you find a group of people who connect with the Father deeply, that's spiritual growth, and love each other graciously, that's ministry, and then seek to invite others to join them, that's mission, 
numerical growth occurs almost automatically. Now, now notice the four types of growth my dad mentioned. I'll mention them to, and do two right here. I'll just number them. Number one, spiritual growth. It's a deep connection with our Heavenly Father. It's an overwhelming sense of who we are in Christ. Number two, ministry growth, loving others in the family of God deeply, the natural expression of living the life of Christ in us. Number three, missions growth. It's inviting others to experience what we've been invited to, what we've been participating in. Number four, numerical growth. It occurs as a byproduct of the process. Now, in order to empower his church to accomplish all of this, Jesus provided us with two things. We discussed them already. Equippers is number one. That's that fivefold ministry leader. That is those people who are gifts to the church. Number two, he provides us with the equipment. That is the spiritual gifts that we all have. In other words, he's given us everything we need. In addition, Jesus has a specific measure he's looking for. He doesn't just want his church to do good things, nor does he simply want his church to just grow. Rather, according to Paul, Jesus envisions a church that will grow. Now, now get this. This is in Ephesians 4.13. Here's the quote. Into mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is, Jesus wants a church that looks just like him. As we grow into that expression of Christ, we naturally do the things he did. This is perhaps one of the reasons why Paul said to actively pursue the gifts which build up the body primarily, 1 Corinthians 14, 12. And there's one more verse, too, I want to show you about this concept. In Ephesians 4, 15, Paul tells us, here it is, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Now, now though telling each other the truth, it certainly applies to how we should live in that verse, speaking the truth in love. The Greek word in this verse is more akin to a total lifestyle. Speaking the truth in love is better translated as truthing. That is, truth is something we do. In the same way Jesus embodied truth, so also does, should, his church, particularly as we edify each other and mirror more and more of his likeness. Now, as we embody truth, the body of Christ is edified. We each encounter his presence in a fuller way. That is the second purpose of the gifts. Number three is this, experiencing partnership with God. A few years ago, I wrote a book about healing. It's the kind of healing that includes both health, natural health, and supernatural breakthrough. And as I studied the topic, it became obvious that I needed to investigate the topic of the laying on of hands because you see that so predominantly in the Bible whenever you see healing happen. I, I learned this just studying laying on of hands and healing. The Bible clearly tells us that healing can be imparted through the laying on of hands. Okay, so first of all, we see the laying on of hands in Jesus's ministry. During his first burst of miracles, for instance, he healed Peter's mother-in-law of a deadly fever. Uh, the crowds came, and here's what happened in Luke 4, 38 through 40. It says he arose, and he left the synagogue, and he went into Simon Peter's house. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering in the grip of a burning fever. This is the amplified version of the Bible. They pleaded with him for her. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever. It left her, and immediately she got up and began waiting on them. Now, at the setting of the sun, indicating the end of the Sabbath, all those who had any sickness, various diseases, they brought them to him, and he laid his hands upon every one of them and cured them. 
So there it is, the laying on of hands with healing. And we see other examples of this all throughout the New Testament with Jesus. Secondly, it wasn't just Jesus's ministry that we saw the laying on of hands with, though. He said that laying on of hands to heal, it would characterize his followers ministry. So he declared that his disciples, past, present, and future, would lay hands on the sick and minister healing. This is in Mark 16, 18. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will get well. And Mark tells us the disciples actually did what Jesus said they would do. If you keep reading Mark 16, 19, and 20, just the next two verses, so then the Lord Jesus, after he'd spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven. He sat down at the right hand of God. And they went and preached everywhere while the Lord kept working with them and confirming the message by the attesting of signs and the miracles that closely accompanied. So notably, Mark mentions Jesus' ascension. Uh, recall it's from the throne that he pours out the Spirit, according to Acts 2.33. And Mark acknowledges that although the disciples did the work of ministry, Jesus was the one that did it through them. This is much like Paul's admission that I work, but not just me, but the Lord worked in me. He says that in 1 Corinthians 15.10. So again, right there, laying on of hands in Jesus' ministry. Jesus says his disciples will do this. And again, you have the very life of Christ in you when you become a Christian. So because of that, you embody his presence. He lives through you. You impart him through you to others. So in Acts 9.17, Ananias, he lays hands on Paul to bring healing to his blindness. And he imparts the Holy Spirit at the same time. And that shows us that clearly Jesus uses people to do the ministry that he does. Since the Lord is not physically present and walking like he was back when the disciples were here, John 1.14, he was, the Word became flesh. Now, Jesus uses his body, his church, to connect with people relationally. So in order to minister to someone, Jesus now works through someone. And, and that someone, a lot of times, gets to be you. Um, now, the laying on of hands, we discussed that several talks ago when I was discussing the Holy Spirit and we noted that the Holy Spirit was often imparted to others through the laying on of hands. Now, it was not present in every instance, um, but it was such an obvious marker during Philip's revival and the imparting of the Holy Spirit. Um, this was when a local magician, after seeing mass healings and miracles and demonic strongholds broken, he wanted to purchase the ability to lay hands on people and impart the Holy Spirit like he saw the apostles do. That's in Acts 8, 19, 8, 8, 18 and 19, actually. Um, but in, in addition to those two, in addition to imparting healing and in addition to imparting the gift of the Holy Spirit, there are at least two other reasons I see the laying on of hands in Scripture. So let, let me describe both of them, and then I'll make the point. Reason number one is we see on to impart leadership and boldness. Reason number two is to impart, get this, spiritual gifts. But let me explain them both. Number one, impart leadership and boldness through the laying on of hands. Now the Bible shows us that leaders can be set aside through the laying on of hands. Often Christians take this to be a symbolic act only. In Baptist churches that I attended growing up, we ordained our deacons through the laying on of hands. Uh, men who had already been ordained as new deacons were permitted to come pray for the man being set aside as a new deacon. 
If asked what we were doing, everyone would say that we were speaking a blessing over that man or that we were encouraging him. This is, in fact, how the event was explained from the stage. But that's somewhat different than what we see in the Bible when leaders are actually given something through the laying on of hands. Now, now by the way, you're, you're going to notice that these categories that I'm giving you, they're kind of arbitrary, like these four categories that I've said, that the Holy Spirit can be imparted through the laying on of hands. Healing can be imparted through the laying on of hands. And now leadership imparted through the laying on of hands. All these categories start to morph. I'm, I've just kind of categorized them separately so that I can understand them and then so I can communicate them. Um, for instance, uh, you'll see in a moment that Paul, he actually imparted spiritual gifts to Timothy through the laying on of hands. But that was most likely occurring while he was setting Timothy aside to leadership. So these different uses, they can work together. Um, you might even see in the instance of Paul being healed and receiving the Holy Spirit at the same time that Ananias laid hands on him in Acts 9.17. Um, so that said, let me, let me give you two examples where people are set aside for leadership through the laying on of hands. And in both instances, their leadership took a quantum leap forward. One's in the Old Testament, Joshua, the other's in the New Testament, Stephen and Philip. Let me give you example number one. Joshua, in the Old Testament, he was anointed and empowered because Moses had laid hands on him. So God told Moses to command, encourage, and strengthen Joshua since he would be the one that would lead the people into the promised land. This is in Deuteronomy 3, 27, 28. Uh, God tells them, here's the quote, Get up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward. Behold it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan, but charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over before his people, and he shall cause them to possess the land which you shall see. So we read that Moses went up, looked at the promised land, came down, obeyed, and he laid hands on Joshua. Numbers 27, 23 says, And he laid his hands upon him and commissioned him as the Lord commanded through Moses. And later we read this. We read that, Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid hands on him. That's Deuteronomy 34, 9. Notice the cause-effect relationship there. Moses did something, and Joshua received something through the laying on of hands. Let me give you another example. The apostles laid hands on the seven in Acts 6, 6, and then they released them into ministry. So immediately thereafter, we read the stories of two of the seven. We read the story of Stephen and Philip. The seven were originally chosen to assist the apostles with the distribution of food to the widows, according to Acts 6.1. As the church grew, the apostles' time was being eaten away from the ministry of the word and prayer. Um, that's Acts 6.4. And the qualification for next-level leadership was that these were men who were full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom and were of attested character and good repute. Look at Acts 6.3. So the laying on of hands, it then equipped those additional leaders with an empowerment to match the character they already had. Here's the result. Stephen, he became the first Christian martyr and he preached the longest sermon recorded in the New Testament. If you read Acts 6.8 all the way through Acts 8.1, that's Stephen. We read that Stephen was full of grace, uh, that's divine blessing and favor, full of power, that's strength and ability, and he worked great wonders and signs among the people. All of that's in Acts 6.8. 
the laying on of hands, it catapulted Stephen into the following. Now catch this. A miracles, signs, and wonders ministry, Acts 6-8. Again, there's some overlap in all these categories, so we may see that gifts come with the laying on of hands as well as leadership. Uh, it empowered him towards martyrdom, Acts 7-58. It empowered him to have the ability to see straight into heaven such that he watched Jesus stand from the throne to welcome him home in Acts 7.56. It empowered him towards preaching. Again, Stephen actually preaches the longest sermon recorded in the book of Acts. It's longer than Peter's sermon at Pentecost. It's longer than all of Paul's testimonies that he gives on trial. So, whereas Stephen remained in Jerusalem and led after this laying on of hands. The second example that we see of the six, uh, or, or of the seven that are set aside into leadership is in, from Acts 6.6, 6, is Philip. Now, I've, I've referenced his story a few times through these series of talks, uh, so I'll be very brief right here. His revival was the first instance of a mass conversion outside of the Jerusalem region. Um, the scripture tells us in Acts 8.4 that Philip, here's the quote, went about through the land from place to place, preaching the glad tidings, preaching the word, that's the doctrine concerning the attainment through Christ of salvation in the kingdom of God, and he did the following. So notice this, here's just his list. I just gave you uh, Stephen's list. Let me give you Philip's. Great crowds converted and were baptized under his leadership. That's Acts 8, 6, and 8, 12. Uh, demons were cast out, Acts 8, 7. There were mass healings, Acts 8, 7. Uh, the apostles came and imparted the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands in Acts 8, 17. And then notice that Philip was released to minister um, and he left and continued his ministry even after leaving that revival from Samaria. Um, that final point about Philip that he left, it's what interests me the most because Philip didn't just have a one-time encounter in which the Lord used him the supernatural became his normal way of living. After he left Samaria, uh, Philip preached to the Ethiopian eunuch, the treasurer of the entire nation in Acts 8.28. He later, later traveled to Azotus, preaching the gospel to every city along the way, all the way up to Caesarea in Acts 8.40. In time, Philip grew even more in his faith, and he became known as Philip the Evangelist, Acts 21.8. That, that is, he became one of the fivefold leaders and equipper of other saints for the work of ministry. And this is where Luke, the author of Acts, he first met Philip. Luke informs us that Philip had four daughters who were prophetesses, Acts 21.9. They too seem to be equippers, fivefold ministers designated to encourage, equip, and empower other believers of the body to discover and deploy their gifts. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to kind of close the loop by answering this question. What instigated all of this? And here it is, several leaders laid hands on these men, on Joshua, on Stephen, on Philip, and they empowered them to do ministry. And that leads me to another observation about the laying on of hands. Remember so far, I've said the laying on of hands, it can come and it can deliver, uh, it can deliver healing, uh, it can deliver uh, leadership, as we just saw, um, Moments ago, we said that we saw it in the ministry of Jesus. We saw it in the ministry of the apostles. Um, it can deliver uh, this boldness. And here it is. We see that it can impart spiritual gifts. Paul apparently imparted spiritual gifts to Timothy via the laying on of hands. 
In his second letter to his son in the faith, Paul admonished him not to walk in fear and intimidation, but to stir up the gift which was in him that, get this, was given through the laying on of my hands. That's 2 Timothy 1.6. Notice that Paul says the vehicle for placing the gift in Timothy was the laying on of hands. Uh, the Amplified Bible infers this was done at his ordination. That is, the time in which they publicly set him aside for ministry. Um, 2 Timothy 1.6, here's the quote, that it is in you by the means of the laying on of my hands with those of the elders at your ordination. Another passage in 1 Timothy clarifies that prophecy was also involved in the impartation. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4.14, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. So it's, it's unclear as to whether these two verses refer to the same impartation or not. Uh, we know that Paul would have been accepted with the elders of the church of Ephesus where Timothy led. Uh, Paul's the one who took the 12 disciples in Ephesus into an encounter with the Holy Spirit according to Acts 19.6. And Luke indicates Paul maintained a deep relationship with the leaders of the church, uh, no doubt fueled by their early beginning together. Um, you could read his farewell letter and speech to them, uh, his farewell words in Acts 20, 17 through 38. Here's the reason I share all of that. Uh, spiritual gifts, what, what I've referred to in other talks as these manifestations, these expressions, the appointments, the divine energies, they are the means whereby the Lord works through us. And throughout Throughout this series of talks, we've discussed that they are a means whereby we partner with the Lord for the achievement of His purposes in the world. And in addition to that, imparting spiritual gifts is another means whereby we partner together with Him. He works through us, supplying the empowering grace that is needed as we allow Him to work through us. So in each of these instances that I've given you, I know it's kind of just kind of talked a lot in circles here over just different stories you see in Scripture most of what Jesus does, he chooses to do through people. And that leads me to really a fourth observation about these spiritual gifts. Fourth purpose of these gifts is this, they establish believers. Now to establish, it means this, to set up on a permanent basis. Due to the relational nature of the gifts, the gifts being the expression of the Holy Spirit in us, uh, they're used to serve other people. They are imparted or confirmed by others in the body. The gifts actually fulfill one of our biggest needs that we have as humans. That is the need to be long. Now, last year I read and reread Paul's letter to Rome, and I noticed something totally related to this relational idea. Uh, now, now, before I tell you what I saw, let, let me remind you of something. Namely, Romans is a theologically dense book. If you ask most pastors what the book contains, they'll tell you it's a systematic summary of our past sin, our present salvation, our ongoing sanctification, and our ultimate glorification. Um, and they're right. That book drives deep, really deep on truths like this. Uh, you sinned, but you're destined for glory. It's Romans 3.23. You didn't earn your salvation, so you don't have to work to keep it. It's a gift. Romans 4.2. Your past sins have been forgiven and forgotten, and God isn't holding future transgressions against you. It's Romans 4, 7, and 8. You are now at peace with God. It's Romans 5, 1. You've been made alive, and you are unified with Jesus. That's Romans 6, 2 through 5. Your inner being, it delights in God's word. Romans 7, 22. There is now no condemnation for you. It's Romans 8, 1. 
everything will work together for your good. Romans 8.28. Nothing you do can separate you from God's love. It's Romans 8.35. You've been completely accepted by Christ. Romans 15.7. Now, I know that that's an incredible list. It's so rich that in honesty, it seems too good to be true until you open up the Bible and see again that yes, the Bible actually says all of that. Now, let me tell you the relational thing that I saw because so often what we do is we see these great truths and we miss the relational aspect. Do you remember what I told you about the laying on of hands sometimes being used to impart things to other people, to impart healing, to, to impart leadership and boldness, to impart spiritual gifts? Notice this from Romans 1.11. Paul writes of his desire to visit the church of Rome so that he might impart some spiritual gift to them. Then he adds this, Romans 1.11. That is, so that you and I may be mutually encouraged. In, in other words, it seems that he feels they would impart something back to him too. Now, frankly, this blows my mind. Paul infers that some truths can be shared via pen and parchment, or via text and screen, or via telephone, but, but there are some things that can only be done face to face. The grandest treasures of the kingdom, the most robust means the Lord uses to establish our faith, that is to set us up on a permanent basis, only happen in person. Notice the reciprocal nature of what Paul suggests. First of all, the Roman church would become more mature, more established, more permanent as he imparted something to them. Second, he would become more permanent more established, as they imparted something back to him. The scripture is clear that believers impart something tangible to one another, something that may not be physical, yet is more real than the actual things we can see and touch. Every time this happens, we become more established, more permanent in our faith. Later in the New Testament, Paul speaks of visiting the church at Thessalonica to, here's what he says, complete what is lacking in their faith. He tells them, he says, night and day, we pray earnestly that we may come see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. That's 1 Thessalonians 3.10. Again, he couldn't do it via pen and paper. He, he was writing to them, some things can only be bestowed face to face. This ability to impart, it's, it's why Paul urges Timothy not to lay hands on people too quickly. In 1 Timothy 5.22, he says, do not be in a hurry in the laying on of hands. You see, when we lay hands on someone, something happens. A supernatural empowerment can be given to them. They become more established, more resolved in their faith position. If they have the character to contain it, it works wonderfully. That, that's why they were finding uh, those early deacons in Acts 6, people who were full of good character and of faith and a great reputation because they're going to impart leadership to them and they need the power that they give them to be backed up by the character that they already have that can sustain them. You see, if not, the results can be disastrous. So again, when the disciples were setting aside or the apostles were setting aside the first seven, they chose men of good reputation. That's Acts 6.3. Their character could carry the anointing that was placed on them whereas a lesser character may not be able to do so. Now, here, here's an issue related to impartation, giving something away through the laying on of hands as well. You can only give away, I believe, what you have. If you don't possess it, 
you can't transfer it. <laughs> this is the pattern we see in the New Testament. So Jesus tells the disciples in Matthew 10, 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you have received, freely give. They can give away those things because he himself has given them to them just a few verses earlier. In Matthew 10, 1, it says he called his 12 disciples to him and he gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every sickness and disease. You see, the scripture also says we love because he first loved us, 1 John 4, 19. And we forgive because we've been forgiven. That's Ephesians 4, 32 and Colossians 3, 13. The old covenant taught that you would be forgiven if you forgave. It, it was conditional. You had to give in order to get, but now we can give away love and forgiveness because we already possess it. You see, again, it's the Lord that does all of this, but he chooses to do it and work through people and through the relationships that we possess. We've, we've been given the storehouses of the kingdom of God in us. We're now containers. We're conduits. And we pass those on to other people, and they and us become more established, more permanent, more resolved in our faith as we do. So the relationships, the connections that are there, that they may be deep and long-lasting, or they may be simply for the ministry of the moment. But since Jesus is not physically present in his own body, he now chooses to use the hands and feet of his body as church. We are that body, and he desires to express himself through us However it occurs, we all become more established, more permanent in our faith. And it's essential, I think, that we see this like Paul as a two-way flow. We neither simply receive ministry nor do we simply give it. We, we do both. Now, the author of Hebrews tells us this. Uh, the author, nobody, nobody knows who wrote that book. Hebrews 5.14 says, Solid food belongs to those who are a full age, mature, that is, those who, catch this phrase, by reason of use, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Maturity comes, that right there, through the very act, the experience of God using us. You see that? Who, by reason of use, have their spiritual senses exercised. That, that is, we move from spiritual milk to spiritual meat as we do the stuff. And whereas in the Western world we equate the accumulation of biblical information with spiritual growth, people in Jesus' day equated the ability to live the message with spiritual growth. In other words, you simply have to do it, and you grow in the very act of exercising those spiritual senses. Using the gifts, it establishes us. It solidifies our faith, rendering it more permanent, and that is, I believe, the fourth purpose of the gifts. Let me give you the fifth. The fifth is to actually enlarge the church. Now, a few minutes ago, I talked about church growth in that conversation that my dad happened to have with the deacons about growing their church. Um, let, me, let me show you something that happened in the book of Acts after the apostles empowered others to minister because I believe this occurs when church leaders release ministry to people, giving them the opportunity to live their calling. So if you go back to the beginning of the book of Acts, we learned that there were 120 believers, 120 people in the upper room praying before Pentecost. 
Now, remember, Jewish believers, they rang in that holiday by praying and studying the scripture through the night, by highlighting the passages from Exodus about the giving of the law, which is probably what the disciples were doing during that time. I discussed that, I believe, in talk number eight, uh, Power from Above, in this series. Notice the growth pattern at Pentecost and following, though. 120 disciples are present in Acts 1.15. 3,000 are added to the church in Acts 2.47 after Peter's Pentecost sermon. 2,000 more are added to the church in Acts 4.4 after Peter and John heal a lame man on the way to go pray and then they're put on trial. That brings the total up to about 5,120 people. Additional signs and wonders were performed and Luke tells us that more and more people were added to the church. This is Acts 5.14, and that's just the phrase he uses, more and more. So we read that people brought sick friends and family members into the streets where they believed Peter would be passing by so that his shadow might fall on them and that they might be healed. That's Acts 5.15. That type of supernatural presence and power, no doubt, it helped accelerate rapid growth by fast addition, which we see in the early church. Here's where it gets interesting, though. One chapter later, the apostles set the first deacons into office, initially to handle food distribution for the widows. This was an extremely practical need that today we would probably overlook. We, we probably do overlook it. Churches today sometimes have a food pantry. Um, this was extremely needed then. And I want you to notice, if, if you read the scripture, you're going to notice there are Greek names in the mix of the leaders that they chose meaning that the Jewish disciples broadened the circles and included others in their leadership levels. Okay, so Pentecost, you saw people from all over the known world come to Jerusalem to celebrate. So you now have a multicultural church. After that moment, the church no longer grows by addition. Rather, Luke tells us that after they laid hands on those leaders and released seven more leaders, that the church numbers began multiplying. He says more believers were empowered to do the work of ministry, Acts 6-7. And so the numbers of disciples, not more and more added, he said in those days, the number of disciples was multiplying. It grew exponentially. Okay, Both the ministry of the word and prayer, and feeding people in need, those were so important that they made sure they delegated leaders for both. Empowering those leaders, it achieved a growth result that even Peter's Pentecost sermon and seeing people healed by his shadow didn't achieve. Spiritual gifts empower other people to minister unencumbered. And here's what I'm saying. That leads to exponential growth. It enlarges the church more than great sermons and more than miracles according to what we see historically in the book of Acts. Let me give you reason number six, purpose number six, final purpose, I think, for spiritual gifts is they ultimately exalt Jesus. The gifts are all about Jesus. They are the means he uses to express himself to the world. We are the connectors, the conduits he uses. In one of the verses which mentions several of the gifts, Peter actually reminds us, 1 Peter 4, 11, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability that God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Christ Jesus, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever. Do you see? 
So six purposes that we discussed. Number one, spiritual gifts. Empower believers. Two, edify the body. Three, experience partnership with God because he uses us. Number four, establish believers. We become more resolved, more resolute, more permanent, fixed in our faith. Number five, they enlarge the church because other people are reached because more people are using the unique way in which the Lord moves through them. And number six, all of it is so massively, exceedingly abundant above what we could do in our own strength that they exalt Jesus. My prayer for you is that the Lord would bless you, the Lord would keep you, the Lord would be gracious, He would make His face to shine upon you, and that just working through the list of the six here, that you would feel empowered beyond anything that you've ever been able to do, and that you would see that empowerment as an enablement and permission to get after it. That number two, as you go, that you would edify and be able to uniquely build others in the world around you and that you would experience the grace and partnership of the Lord flowing through you, moving through you, that you would become more fixed and permanent in your faith because you would see Him working through you and that it would make others more fixed, more established in their faith, ultimately enlarging the circle of influence of people that are in your circle of your community of faith, whether that's your church, a small group, a Bible study, a group of friends that you invest deeply and ultimately that Jesus will be exalted in all of this. Grace.